welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Man, check, check. Awesome. Love it. So we decided to get these cool new iPads for our worship team, but that means we have no more music stands. So I found this thing in the corner because I'm not as cool as Mike. I, don't, I, I preach with some notes. And uh, so there you go. This is going to be my friend for today. Awesome. Hey, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I know you may not recognize me because I lost a lot of hair recently, um, but it is me. This is Adam, the Adam you know and love. Indeed, right here, in the flesh. Awesome. So we're in, the, we're in the middle of our mountain series, and so if you are not quite up to date or if you're new today, you are joining into the middle of something which is pretty special for our church um, that is actually part of a greater theme that is, that is encompassing the entire calendar year, okay? And so it started off with us talking about what is scriptural, spiritual awakening? What does it look like for us as Christians to experience awakening because of the Word of God? And because of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we started. And so we went through the book of Daniel because we love the Bible here at the church. We love all of the Bible. We believe all of it is helpful for teaching and training in righteousness, correction, rebuke, um, and growing in intimacy with God. And so that's why we just like to go through books of the Bible. And so now we're in a series that flows out of that. And kind of when we talk about scriptural, spiritual awakening, there's all this talk. What does it look like for awakening in our generation? What does it look like for North America to experience awakening? And if you're not a Christian in here, everything I just said, you're like, what are you talking about? But for Christians, this is a big concern, right? What does it look like for North America to experience awakening? And so we wanted to not just talk about that and kind of come up with all the weird conspiracy theories and all that stuff. We wanted to set a bedrock foundation for Christian spiritual theology. And we, what we found with Daniel was it's highly practical for everyday life. Right? The, spirit, the Spirit, living in the Spirit, is highly practical for everyday life because that is how Daniel lived. And so we take that, and now we're going into the Sermon on the Mount to help us as a church to build character, that Jesus is giving His kingdom manifesto, right? This is what the kingdom of God is like. And if we are citizens of the kingdom, this is the life I want to give you the freedom to live. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount specifically to build our character. And not just, we, Jamal said it in the, in the announcements, right? We don't want to just build a caricature. That is something that portrays something that's real, but it's not actually real, right? And we are so good at doing that, aren't we? And putting on a mask, saying this is the real me to the outside world when it's really not. And so now we're here looking at the Sermon on the Mount, looking for Jesus to take the mask off. <clears throat> I think it's actually really funny how uh, every time Mike goes away, it's always like a really easy sermon topic, right? And so last, uh, last December, you guys remember what I preached on? Death? Or was it November? I can't remember. Anyway, death? Woohoo! fun. Money the week right after that? And guess what this week's all about? The law! <laughs> Thanks, Mike. All right. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's actually been totally providential. It's not strategic. It's, uh, it's just how it goes sometimes. But we're going to talk about the law today, everyone's favorite topic. And when I say the law, we're not talking about, you know, jaywalking or like, I don't know, you have to pay the government a certain amount of taxes because, you know, the Canadian government, a bunch of people stood together in a room and said, yeah, that's a good idea, so let's put that law into action, and that's what we all have to do. We're not necessarily talking about that. We're talking about God's law. Um, so let's, let's jump in. Actually, that can be kind of scary, isn't it? Right? I think God has laws? Like, ooh, I thought we are Christian, right? And we live in, like, freedom, and, uh, which isn't actually total anarchy, right? We understand freedom is not total anarchy. It's that we, that we actually have the freedom to live out who God has called us to be, and He tells us what that looks like, and we operate in that. It's not just we do whatever we want, right? That's not what freedom is. And we know that because we're free in this country, right? But there's still laws. So yes, God has laws, and it's not that scary because we learn to love and appreciate even human-made laws, right? <clears throat> All right, so here we go. Jesus, I'm gonna, we're going to break down the Scripture into three parts. Um, the, the first, I mean, it's, it's pretty much only four verses, so it shouldn't be too hard. Uh, let's start here. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. If you don't know what an iota is, it's like the smallest uh, letter in the Greek alphabet, and, uh, and a dot. Consider that when he says dot, that's like the accent aigu in French, you know? It's something, very little thing, right? So it's basically all he's saying is, we're not even going to take away the smallest little thing, okay? For truly I say to you... Oh, yeah, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. All right, so this is a good question for us. What is the law? What is that? What does the law mean? When we see that word in the Scripture, how are we supposed to think about that? Because it's very important. Right? If, you say, if, if Jesus is saying that he's fulfilling something, we need to pay attention to what that is. So is it just the, is, we can hear that and be like, ah, oh, the law is the Old Testament, Right? And we're Christians, so we live free, so that's like the New Testament. So the law must just be the Old Testament. Maybe. Almost. Maybe it's not the full picture, but it's not totally inaccurate. Maybe is the law the Ten Commandments? Yeah, maybe. It's not a, it's not a horrible answer either, right? Um, is it the 613 laws of the, that are in, within the Old Testament that God specifically gives to His people to do? Yeah, maybe that's a pretty good answer too, right? If, if you know something about the Old Testament, you know that there's a lot of things that God tells His people to do, and some seem a little bit strange, right? Like, don't eat shellfish. It can be weird because shrimp is amazing. <laughs> Especially shrimp sushi. Oh, put it on a little bed of rice, a little something. Mm, just awesome. How can God say not to do that? <clears throat> is it when Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor? Right? Maybe. Any of these could be correct, but specifically when we see these two words together, the law and the prophets, what Jesus is saying is the entirety of the Scripture as we have it. Okay, so the, think of it in that context. So all of those things. He's not come to abolish any of those things. He's come to fulfill those things. 
And I think this is important because Jesus is about to blow their mind. Actually, he already has blown their mind by this point. People are already like, what? And so it's easy um, to be like, okay, so all of this stuff that, that we've been told in the past, is it totally meaningless? What was that all about? Like, should we just throw all that out and forget about it? And that's not what he's saying. He's not come to abolish it. We're not going to throw that out. He, uh, He says upwards of six times in the Scripture, you have heard it said, but I say to you, okay, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that about six times. And so you can hear that and you can easily say, yeah, okay, you have heard it said. Yeah, so this is what my, my favorite pastor told me, and, you know, they said it all the time. This is the way he said it. And Jesus, you know, he seems pretty smart. He seems to know what he's talking about, and he just spent time all throughout, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Galilee, teaching and, and preaching and healing. It's like, hmm, there's something to this guy. Um, is he speaking against what I've been told my entire life about who God is and what God wants me to do and how God wants me to live? Is he against that? It's easy to think that when he talks like this. You've heard it said, but I say. And I think he wants to just reassure them that what he's communicating to them is the core essence of it is what God has always been speaking. God has always been speaking the same thing to his people. At the beginning, in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, let's talk a little bit about how he blows their mind and why why we might think this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's crazy because what we do is we look out into the world, even in the church we do this, and we say, Oh, that person has a good career. They must be blessed. That person has the nuclear family, 2.3, is it 2.3? I don't know. Kids <laughs> and a wife. They, that, they must be blessed. They have a great retirement savings account. They must be blessed. And he says, no, actually, bless, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Man, that is the total opposite, especially if you're a man of what you've been taught to do, right? Boys don't cry. It's the total opposite of what culture tells you. And if you, you must be strong. You must be blessed if you are strong enough to go through something hard, carry it on your back, and not cry. He's, this is mind-blowing. Because we can think when we go through something really hard and it just devastates us, that God is not for us in that moment. It's an easy place to run to. Mike said it in previous weeks, right? We think of meekness, blessed are the meek, as weakness. Is that true? That's crazy. Weakness? Meekness? I'm not understanding you, Jesus. You're blowing my mind right now. 
Blessed are the merciful. He's taking their entire world and flipping it upside down. Without qualification, without any, anything, any pretext, whatever, he says, you are salt and you are light. Who's he talking to? Just the people who showed up, right? Are these people all perfect? Are these people all without sin? Are they? No, these are just regular people. Jesus goes out into the land ministering in through all the towns, and then they follow him around, it says. They're just following him. And so he goes onto this mountain, and it's just all these people who are just following him around. They just want to know more, right? It's just people who are like, man, something crazy is going on with this guy. And without any qualification, it says, you are salt and you are light. You don't have to clean yourself up. You're already, you are salt. That's what you're always made to be. You make life interesting. You make life fun. You preserve what is good. And you didn't say fix yourself up and then you're that. This is totally turning it upside down because what would they have heard? And what do we hear all the time? The people outside the church, those people are sinners. Yeah, they are. Is that where Jesus starts? No. He starts with, you are ultimately valuable to everything that is going on on this entire planet because you are salt. Now, are we going to find out throughout Jesus' sermon that we're sinners? Oh, boy. Yeah, we are. Right? Who gets angry in here sometimes? Yeah, not that anger is a sin, but do we hate our brother through it? <clears throat> what about lust? Yeah, we're going to find out we're sinners in here, aren't we? But right from the get-go, Jesus gives them a new identity and calls out in them what they've always been. Man, that's amazing. That, that is what turns everything upside down. I remember Mike talking about uh, Stranger Things and the Upside Down, right? <laughs> Actually, here, we want to talk about Upside Down. I heard this illustration once. This is, this is pretty cool. So uh, this one pastor, theologian guy, he talks about um, when, we are, uh, when we're not living in, in the kingdom without the Holy Spirit, right? That we're, we're living, flying in a plane, and the, but the plane's upside down, okay? And we're flying around the world. So think about a plane on the earth that is literally flying upside down. Pretty cool, right? We'd be like, wow, that guy's a skilled pilot. That's pretty flashy. That's a really neat thing to do, right? What do you do? What's like, what's every time you see an action movie, right? And they're in a plane and, and, and something happens. Something bad happens. What's the thing they yell? Pull up! Pull up, pull up! Right? Am I wrong? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, Woo, we're here. All right, we got the Starbucks coffee this morning, guys. Come on. All right. <laughs> Pull up. What happens if you're flying a plane upside down, something crazy comes and ravages your life, and you pull up? What happens? You smash into the ground because your life is upside down. We don't know how our life's actually supposed to be. So he's going to turn them right side up. That's pretty cool. And opening with, 
Blessed are the opposite of everything you've been told. And you are valuable. Specifically in these two ways. That's amazing. All right, so we're right side up now. Why does he want to do this? Again, like I said, this is the message that God has been speaking to his people for all eternity. He references the law and the prophets. I'm not here to abolish it. We are not throwing this out the window. That what God has been saying for all time, you are my people. I love you. I am pursuing you. I ultimately want good for you. That's never changed. That's never changed. I am not here to abolish the law or the prophets. And so we as Christians, just as a practical point here, we can stand on this book and say, ultimately, for all of time, God has been speaking to His people a message of hope, something good. He's been revealing Himself to us through Various kinds of ways, but ultimately, a lot of them are recorded right here, and we can stand on this. If, uh, if you want to see a great example of uh, kind of the, the position of someone's heart towards the Scripture, you can read Psalm 119. It's just craziness. I'll, just, I'll flip there real quick and just give you a little... A little taste. It's the longest psalm by far. And this guy loves the scripture. <clears throat> You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. On that, my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. All these words, statutes, commandments, rules, right? He's like, yeah, what God, what you have been speaking, what you, what has been recorded, like this guy is not just taking what God gave him solely in, in his secret place, in his prayer time alone with God. This guy's standing on what has been. I've stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Teach me your statutes. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is, there's like, there's pages of this in mind. I have to flip through to find, find the end of this thing. This psalm is, so let's stand on the scripture. And you can, you can read that on your own time. But it's, if you want to kind of understand more fully, when Jesus is like, I'm not going to abolish these things, we can go back and see the value in, in why that's important. All right, so Jesus appreciates the Scriptures, and He wants to maintain the primacy of the Scriptures, but why? Right? It says, these are very important. We're not going to throw this out. We're going to talk about a lot of things, and it may seem like I'm saying something otherwise, but no. The Scriptures are primary. The Scriptures are important. Why? Fulfillment, He says. So, not abolish. We're not getting rid. We're going to fulfill Okay, so this is just a quick definition of fulfillment. Because I was like, you know, it'd be pretty cool to just see what that really means. Because we can assume that. We can assume what it means. But this is what it, this is what it means in English. Okay, bring to completion or reality. 
achieve or realize, or in another sense, carry out a task as required, pledged, or expected. So yeah, okay, Jesus is going to do that with the Scriptures, but how does that, how does that work? We have, to, we have to have some understanding of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets as he's talking about it, because ultimately, and I think what he's getting at in, in, in a small way here, actually in a, in a pretty big way, is that all of it points to him. And if you're a Christian, you kind of understand that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, the Scriptures, we've heard this for a while, especially if you've grown up in the church, right? All the Scriptures point to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, that line is for you right there. Guess what? This book, no matter what you read in here, ultimately, it's going to point to Jesus in some way. All right, so what does that look like? Let's make it real. <clears throat> First off, just to prove that point there, that it all points to Jesus, John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in terms of, uh, that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, that's the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. What did Moses write? He wrote the Pentateuch, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible. We know this even when it's, Jesus is not explicitly mentioned, right? Like, we don't go back to the Old Testament and we see, oh, yeah, this, it, it, there's no, like, bolded text saying, this is about Jesus, right? You just don't find that. And so even when it's not explicitly mentioned, we know because Jesus says this. And begin, oh, well, he doesn't say this. This is describing what he's doing. Um, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so Moses being the Pentateuch, the first five books, and then prophets, the rest, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The, ultimately, the law was kept perfectly by Jesus. So that's Let's say, let's say we're thinking the law in the sense of the 613 uh, laws that have been given in the Old Testament. He fulfilled those perfectly. Even in this sense, all of its penalties. There are penalties against God's sinful people, and even that is fulfilled in Jesus, and that's amazing. And so this is what it means. It means the law, the law is not the path to righteousness. And so we don't, we don't do those things. We pursue Christ because He fulfills it. He then manifestly is the path to righteousness. Previous to that, the law is the path to righteousness. And He's going to get to it in a minute, the people who really like to fulfill the law, Right? and they build their righteousness on doing that. But now, as it's fulfilled in Christ, He is the way to righteousness. Let's keep going. How does this, how does this work out practically? So there are blood sacrifices in the Old Testament. Is that fulfilled in Jesus? Yeah. How did that work? Let's just think of an easy one, Passover. Passover, how did that work? Okay, so you get a lamb, you slaughter it, you paint the blood on the doorpost saying that you trust in God's promises, that you trust that God is who He says He is, and death will pass over your household. 
Jesus is our Passover lamb. What's the only way we can conquer the grave? Jesus. You want death to pass over you? You want hope beyond the grave? The only way is Jesus. Why? Because He is the one who defeated death. He's the one who was slain. And we trust in the blood of Jesus. We paint it on the doorpost of our life and say, this is all about, I am trusting in Jesus. I'm painting the blood of Jesus on the doorpost of my life. I'm going to take communion every week to celebrate the blood of Jesus. Death passes over us. The priesthood. The priesthood. What is the priesthood about, right? Because there's these priests and there's like a temple. And for us now, we're like, that's super weird because, I mean, maybe it's not because we have like, you know, churches and they set up altars too and they can get all fancy and I guess the priests, they can wear a cool, a cool dress and carry a stick and wear a neat hat, right? And we can kind of set up a similar system. But what Jesus does here is He fulfills the priesthood, okay? So the Old Testament describes all these things the priesthood is supposed to do. What, for what purpose? To mediate between God and the people. And so Jesus fulfills that. He mediates between man and God. He's the one mediator. You don't need a place. You don't need a person to get access to God. This is, this is especially dangerous for us as Christians, right? Because we have our favorite preachers. We have our favorite pers- Christian personalities. We have our, our Christian friends uh, who we're like, we say these things, right? We're like, oh, man, when I'm around that person, God just speaks so clearly, which is actually a good thing, right? We should be that as the church. But when, you, when it gets to a point where you literally need that person to mediate your relationship with God, we're in a dangerous place. That person's not the mediator between you and God. Jesus is the mediator between you and God. That's amazing, actually. Isn't that beautiful? Man, we can trust in the blood of Jesus. We can trust that Jesus mediates between us and God. That he's destroying the system that is set up to keep you separated from the presence of God. The temple is fulfilled in Jesus. What was the temple for? I just said it, I guess, right? That's where the presence of God dwelt. And you had to go to the temple. Do you have to do that anymore? No. Do you come to church to be in the presence of God? Now, I'm not going to say don't go to church, but you're in a dangerous place if the only time you experience the presence of God is on Sunday morning. This here is not the temple. Jesus fulfills the sacrifices. Jesus fulfills uh, the role of the priest. And Jesus freely releases the presence of God amongst all people through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's these crazy food laws. What's that all about? It's to show the cleanliness of the people, the the purity of the people, that certain things are clean, certain things are unclean. And what does Jesus say? It's not what goes into a man that makes him clean, but what comes out, right? And the Pharisees, they try and clean When we talk about cleanliness, they try and clean the outside of the cup. They try and make themselves look nice on the outside. Jesus fulfills that. He makes us clean of sin. 
on the cross. This is beautiful. We can think, how many times, okay, so I'm a pastor, so maybe I have these conversations a little more frequently because people, you know, you get talking to people, it's like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm an accountant. Oh, cool. That's great. And then they ask, oh, what do you do? Oh, <laughs> you sure you want to know? You sure you want to ask the question? Because I have a weird, really weird life, right? Uh, and so I, I'm a pastor. My wife and I, we started a church. Nothing weird, not a cult, you know, Christian. We love Jesus, love the Bible. That's pretty much as simple as it needs to be. And I say, oh, okay. Oh, man, I totally just realized I dropped all these F-bombs. Like, I'm so sorry about that. I didn't mean to offend you. And do people do that? When they find out you're a Christian, do they, do they react like that? Yeah, right? Because people want to feel like they are clean, right? And when they, not, when, when, when they, when they do something that, that maybe they feel in their conscience uh, is, is not that, not pure, not good, not holy, not right, they, uh, they want to make themselves clean. And Jesus on the cross says, you are clean. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Don't. Like, this crazy mess with you trying to just clean the outside of the cup, right? When you're, when you're hanging out with that friend, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to swear. It's like, look, look, that really, that does not matter. One, number one, I'm not offended. I've heard those words a million times, and I've probably used those words more times than you because I have not been a Christian my whole life. I got saved at 23, and boy, did we think we were having fun back then, all right? And, uh, and so Je- Jesus knows the inside, okay? And he makes it clean. And when you try and just clean the outside like that, man, that is just a wasted effort. Don't try and be fake about it. Be who you are. Jesus will clean you. And stop trying to clean yourself. And that is for the non-Christian in the room. If you're in the room and you're like, okay, I don't get this cleanliness thing. You want to make yourself look good for other people. You just do. And then when you go back to the to the, uh, the kind of normalcy of your life, you know it's a mess. And same for the Christian. Don't come to church and just say everything's all right. I'm fine. Hey, good to see you. Yeah, I'm fine. How are you doing? Like, hey, tell me about your week. Yeah, it was okay, but how was your week? Because I don't want to talk about me. Let's deflect and we'll talk about you. Because the more we talk about me, maybe the closer you get to me and the more you see who I really am. You ever start dating a person and realize that they're uh, not as perfect as you thought they were? Oh, if I could just get that girl, you know. Yeah, she seems, she seems real nice, and she's beautiful, and she's funny, and she's, oh, yeah, she's just, I'm, I want to marry that girl. All right, so I'm going to ask her out on a date. Here we go. And then you go out on that date, and then you hear her laugh. And you're like, oh, oh, no, oh, no. Right? I forget how I was going to tie that back in, but I don't know. <laughs> it just happens, right? People just aren't perfect, you know? People just aren't perfect. <clears throat> all right, civil and nation state is all fulfilled in Jesus as well. So <laughs> God was saving a people for himself, right? And so the people asked for a king, <laughs> and uh, uh, People ask for a king, and, and God was like, well, you know, hey, like, I'm, all, I'm God. You don't need a king. You have me. And they're like, no, we want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. God says, okay, you know, and this just sets everything off on a complete disaster. You just read through 
you read through the Old Testament, you see this king, he turned people astray, and all the people sinned, and it was horrible. And so then they got a new king, and then this king led all the people astray, and everybody sinned against God, and it was horrible. And then they got this king, and you're like, what the heck? Why do they want a king? This is horrible. And so Jesus fulfills that in himself because every king dies, right? Is there any of those kings that sits eternal on the throne? No. Jesus dies, he raises again, conquering Satan's sin and death, and proving that he rules and reigns, and he sits on the throne forever. He fulfills that role of the king, that God ultimately will rule over his people. And so what that means for us is we don't need a nation state called Christian because we're supposed to be seeds of the kingdom scattered throughout the world that we are in the world, but not of the world. We are sojourners here. What does that word mean? It means we're here passing through, but not in a sense where we don't want to invest and love and care for and appreciate and put everything we have into what's around us. We do. We're not just passing through in the sense that we use things and we leave them behind after we make a mess out of it. Not a sojourner in any sense of that, but we wander through life knowing that this ultimately is not our home for eternity. Because Jesus is the king, and he rules and reigns forever. And we don't have a nation state that we can say, yes, this is exactly my home. This piece of land, this little box right here, this is mine. We don't need that. Because we know this is not where we're going to be forever. And here's the bottom line. In the kingdom, fulfillment comes from what Jesus does, not what you do. Fulfillment comes from what Jesus does, not what you do. There's so many times in my life, and I'm sure this is probably true for you as well, um, we make sacrifices to try and fulfill our own expectations, other people's expectations, But fulfillment that God promises only comes from Jesus. And ultimately, when we're honest with ourselves, it may work for a short time, but ultimately, the fulfillment we find in the short term does not last or satisfy. Because when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's not just saying, all right, check this box, I'm checking this box, I'm checking this box. What he's saying is, I'm restoring everything to what it should always have been. And so when we try and find fulfillment in our life, essentially what we're trying to do is restore our lives to the state in which they always should have been. Something inside of us knows that we need fulfillment, and so it's trying to find it. But it won't work if we do it on our own. I found this super interesting. I stole all these statistics from StatsCan. I did a little research. I felt really smart, and it was fun. So I went on StatsCan, and I just started Googling some stuff um, because that's a verb now. I didn't actually use Google. I just, StatsCan, hey, I guess they have their own little Google. They have their own little search bar. So I was Googling on StatsCan, and this is what I, this is what I found. Okay, this is fun and interesting. So people were asked to identify the most important issue facing Canadian families. 
Can you guess what they said? Any guesses out there? Huh? Safety? Okay. Yeah, that was on the list for sure. Financial security. Yeah, huge. That was at the top of the list. That was number one. What is the number one issue facing Canadian households? Most people said money. Wow. I get it. It's hard. I've lived in this city my whole life. My parents had some money, but at 17, I left home. I didn't talk to my parents for about five years, and so I had no money. And I know how hard it is to live in this city. But really, that's the number one issue facing Canadian households? If we're trying to find fulfillment for our families in money, we think we'll ultimately be satisfied with money, that our families will be fine and, and our families will be healthy and our families will be happy if we just have more money? Man. Uh-oh. <clears throat> Here's some interesting stats, too. Only 1% said that an issue was that both parents were working and that somebody else was raising their kids. That's not an issue. Less than, now it's okay, ladies, for you to work, but who's taking care of our kids? Who's raising our kids? Especially if we're Christian. Are we just going to pawn that off to, to the city? Huh. How can we stay faithful to our commitment as a church when we dedicate our children to the Lord and say, yeah, we will raise them up in your ways? Man, what's the primary way in which that comes from? That comes from the parents. And if we spend 40, 50 hours of our life away from our kids each week, can we really honestly say we're fulfilling that promise? Less than 1% said religion, lack of faith, or secularism was one of the most important issues facing Canadian families. Are we a Christian nation? No way, Jose. I didn't make this up. This is stats cam. Less than 1% said single-parent families. Less than 1% said infidelity. Yet how many families do we see that are torn apart? Man, so many. It's heartbreaking. It's horrible. Because we're not satisfied. We're trying to find fulfillment in our partner, and so, well, they're not filling us up, so I'll just go find another one. Less than 1% said infidelity was the number one issue in their household. How many dudes, we could go find other stats, how many dudes are addicted to pornography, right? We know, we've heard, 80%, 50% of pastors, 80% of men. Ladies, you're not off the hook either. You're at 30%. All right, so kind of related to this issue of, of money in the home is uh, this issue of work-life balance. One-third of Canadians identify themselves as workaholics. So what do we do to solve this money problem in our household, to chase after what we ultimately think will fulfill our families, satisfaction, happiness, all this stuff? Well, money, so what is the next logical step? Well, I'm going to go work more to make more money, to get more happiness for my family. It's a logical step. But here's the truth. 47% of Canadian employees weren't happy at work. 
<laughs> We're like so just out of our minds, right? It's just not working. 67% of Canadians do not think the next generation will have a better standard of living than themselves. Holy smokes, 70% essentially say, my kids are not going to live as good as I am because we just don't have enough money. 29% in order to, in order to Worship the God of money. This is what happens. 29% of Canadians experience daily stress that they rate between four or five out of five. Five being the worst kind of stress. Daily. What? Is this worth it? 41% of millennials. It is 29% of Canadians as a whole. The next generation, the millennials, the ones coming after us, we're all pretty much like, yeah, we're kind of... We just snuck in as millennials, some of us. Actually, I guess some of you guys are younger than me, aren't you? Okay, so there's a lot of millennials in here. So I'm talking about you. Uh, 41% of millennials experience daily stress that they rate between four and five out of five. How is this going, finding fulfillment on your own? And this is true even in the church. Overall, we generally have a, decli a decline in the desire to follow Jesus genuinely, which means allowing Him to fulfill everything in us and a rise in stress and dissatisfaction amongst an entire nation. <clears throat> People don't live like they're in the kingdom or accountable to the king, even in the church. What are you willing to sacrifice in order to get fulfillment? If you're working all the time, guess what? You're sacrificing your kids. I know a guy, he's, he's a good friend of mine. It broke my heart because he's like, he has, he has, a, he has a son in, in about, I guess, three years old. Um, he's a lawyer and his wife is a lawyer. They have everything that we want, right? He, he's got the house in the cool neighborhood, right? He's got the car. He's got a house in downtown Toronto. Woo, that, that costs some money, right? On average, do you know how much that costs? $1.2 million. <laughs> I got five bucks, <laughs> you know? Like, I know, I'm I know I can pay for maybe part of lunch. You know? <laughs> but he told me a story. He says, yeah, we, we pay a nanny um, some ridiculous amount of money, something like, you know, $35,000, $40,000 a year to, uh, to, to um, get our kid ready for, ready for bed, to do the bath time, do the dinner at the end of the day, you know, get them in their jammies so that at night I can spend an hour and a half with my son before he goes to bed. That's what you get five days a week? Man, some of the most precious moments with my daughter are playing in the bath with the, with the bubbles, trying to get the food in, doing the airplane, right? Now, am I saying I'm better than him? No, but I was just so heartbroken for what I felt like he was missing out on. Are we willing to sacrifice our kids? What are you willing to sacrifice? Relationships with people? Maybe it's a relationship with your parents because they disagree with your faith in Jesus. Now, 
Ultimately, Jesus is number one. But do you walk around with a Jesus hammer and bash him over the head every time you see him? What are we willing to sacrifice? Relationship with our parents because we're too busy, I don't know, going to the coolest concert. Or, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is for you, you ask. That's, that's the question for you. How's it going for you? What are you trying to find fulfillment in? Okay, so we kind of get, we're, hopefully we're getting somewhere. So this is maybe, maybe the thought in our mind. I was trying to like see, okay, what would we be thinking at this point? Actually, I should check the time too. There's not a clock on the wall here like at Jarvis. Oh boy. Uh-oh. <coughs> yeah, all right, good. We got some time. We also changed the service order, and I haven't preached the new service order, so now I'm looking at the clock, and I'm like, I don't even know when I'm supposed to end if I'm supposed to end. <laughs> awesome. All right, we're in this together, right? Awesome. Here we go. So, <clears throat> um, so we may be thinking, all right, so I get it. All right, cool. So I'm going to follow Jesus. You got me. You're, we're preaching to the choir here. We're all Christian in this room. You know, we're all at church. We're all doing pretty good. So I get it. We're following Jesus. And in following Jesus, it's not about what I do, but Jesus does for me. So does that mean that what I do doesn't matter? Matt shook his head. No. No, I saw that. No, that's not what I'm saying. All right. Let's, um, I mean, Jesus is going to spend the, the, the whole next couple chapters talking about how we live our lives. So it's certainly not about that. Because remember, I think Mike said this when he was setting up the sermon the first week. Um, he said, this is, this is one sermon. Let's read this as a whole, right? Let's read this as a whole. Let's not forget as we go through section by section that this is not a part of a whole, okay? So Jesus is going to talk a lot about how we should live. So absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's real implications for what we do. Why? Because it reveals the motive of our heart. It reveals what we are trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in, what we do. So let's read. So we finally got to verse 19 now. We did verse 17 and 18. Here we are in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what's the warning here? What's the warning? Because we do this. We do this in the church. We want, to, we want to abolish the law and the prophets. We want to abolish the Scripture. So how to, I kind of just came up with two ways. There's probably definitely way more ways than this. So one, we actively teach disobedience or slow obedience in the way that we speak to each other and to our non-Christian friends. We actively teach disobedience or slow obedience with our words. Okay, so uh, what can that look like? We actively teach disobedience. Oh, it's okay. You do you. No, 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 no. We can't do that, right? What does it say? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Ah! No, no, no. It's not you do you. You do Christ. Right? But how many times do we say that? Ah, oh, it's all right, brother. You do you. Oh, it's okay. That's just your personality. No. 
If our personality is actively going against what Jesus is asking us to do and telling us what a kingdom life looks like, if our personality is antithesis to that, man, mm -mm, not you do you. You do Christ. We need to repent. We need to change. We need to be the salt and the light, as he says we are. Or slow obedience. Hey, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really taking some time. Like, I don't really, I don't really know. Like, it's tough for me. Yeah, man, just take your time. It's all right. Everyone's on a journey. That's true. How about this? Hey, man, I know it's super hard right now, but you're not alone. Today can be the day where everything changes. Because God is with you. God is for you, not against you. Today can be the day that you stop looking at pornography. Today can be the day that you repent of your hatred and bitterness for your Christian friend who sinned against you. Today can be that day. You don't need to struggle with that anymore. Be free. That's okay. Just take your time. Don't teach slow obedience because slow obedience ultimately is no obedience. This is another way. Number two, we allow fear and apathy and pragmatism to dictate how we obey with our own lives, okay? So this is without words. We're afraid to do what God's calling us to do, and so we don't do it. And so what what does that say just through our life to the people around us? It's okay, right? It's okay to not obey God. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, am I giving you license to go out the Jesus hammer and bash people over the head? No. No, that's not what it looks like, right? Love your neighbor. Yeah, love your neighbor, right? Does your neighbor love getting beat in the head with the Jesus hammer? No, they do not. Right? Do they need the truth of the gospel? Yes, they do. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Peace, peace patience, joy, gentleness. Gen- gentleness. Is it Jesus' hammer? Is that gentle? Ba-ba! You're a sinner. You need to repent. Ba-ha! Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Right? Is all that stuff good? Yeah, but man, slow down. Be gentle. Get to know that person so you know how it practically applies to their life. All right, cool. I see the band moving. That means like probably got not a lot of time left. Let's get some stuff going. So what is it then? What is it then? Where do we find fulfillment, right? How do we not relax these? Num- I, I got three things. Hopefully this is a pretty good list. A deep trust and understanding of the promises of God. Let's go back to the law and the prophets and see what God has promised over and over and over. I love you. I'm going to turn your heart of flesh into a heart of stone. I'm going to send my spirit to you. Let's go back and look at those things and trust those things. How many times when it gets hard, we're like, okay, yeah, like, uh, that doesn't apply anymore because it's hard right now. So, you know, church sucks and everything sucks and I'm just going to, I'm just going to do something else now. Yeah, my Christian brother sinned against me, so, so I don't need the church anymore. Uh, 
a deep trust and understanding of the promises of God. I have made you a people. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. God has made us a people together and, and said that, that he's going to be with us as the people. What happens when you're like, yeah, this just kind of sucks. Yeah, there's sinners at church. I don't want to be there. <laughs> of course there's sinners at church. You're here. I'm here. We know that. That is so obvious, right? But the promises of God are, I will send my spirit among you. When two or three are gathered together, this is Matthew 18. When he says it, when two or three are gathered together, he's not giving the definition of what church is. He's giving the definition of what it looks like for Christians to reconcile. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him. For when two or three are gathered, surely I will be with you. All right, I better keep going. Guys, you can come out. You don't have to hide behind the curtain. We can be friends. I like it when I have people with me. Hey, what's up, Ruby? Okay, I better get this going. All right, cool. Let's, let's, no, number two on there is a satisfaction in the character of God. If God is good, we need to trust that he's good and be satisfied with that. If God uh, is faithful, we need to trust that God is faithful and be satisfied with that. Number three, this one's hard, an experience directly interacting with the faithfulness of God through perseverance and obedience. That's hard because it's going to get hard. But will you persevere and will you stay obedient no matter what? Because you know who God is and you know who, what his promises are. So many times I wanted to quit planning this church. You know how hard it is? There's sinners at this church. <laughs> it's hard, right? I'm a sinner, right? How many times do we want to quit? I want to quit a lot of times. And so many times, God has just been like, persevere. Just persevere. Just keep doing what I've called you to do. And man, every time, every time I stand up from praying in that moment, I say, okay, we're going to persevere. Man, the, the next season that comes after that, when we decide not to quit, because God calls us to not quit, is full of so much joy. And we miss that when we quit. We miss that. All right, let's keep moving. Oh boy, clock's ticking. Christian, uh, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to do it themselves. They are trying to do it themselves. They didn't care about who God was. They cared about the rules. Just go, go find every interaction with the Pharisees. Do they ever bring up the character of God? No, they're bringing up some silly rule. Man, that's so annoying. I had one guy message me. We were in a small group together. He messaged me a few weeks ago. He said, oh, hey, how's it going? I was like, oh, good. He's like, can I have your statement of faith to your church? Yeah, sure, here you go, man. So I gave him our builder's orientation booklet. You know what his next comment was? That's a bad book to recommend to people. Hey, hey, hey. Were we friends? <laughs> Jeez. That's not even in the statement of faith. You know? So if we're, <laughs> I guess the point of that is to say, if we aren't careful, we're going to develop our own set of extra, extra biblical rules, rules outside the Bible that we force onto people to follow to find satisfaction. Hey, if you just raise your hands in worship, you will feel so much better. Mm, look at me. Mm, loving it. 
right? Now, should we raise our hands in worship? Do we have the freedom to do that? Heck yes. You saw me for 20 minutes. I stood there with my hands in the air. <clears throat> Praise Jesus, right? But if we look at someone who doesn't, what do we think about them? Something to watch out for. All right. How do we make sure to rely on the finished work of the cross and not our own works? Well, this is, this is the only way I think I can sum it up, was consistently and constantly turning to Jesus. Martin Luther, uh, the, the great Protestant reformer, uh, said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. If we don't have a moment of repentance daily, then likely you're going to have a hard time answering a question about what God is speaking to you teaching you, showing you, or growing in you. If you don't have a moment of repentance daily, if you don't have a moment of repentance daily, then you will likely be trying to do everything yourself based on your own laws rather than trusting the promises of God that Jesus has already fulfilled. So stop trying and start trusting. And for you, your first step today may be communion. If you're a non-Christian, we're going to do communion. All right, so see here, we're done. So we can move this thing up. Let's talk about communion, right? Because this is our next step. Christian, you do this every week. Do not make this an ex, a, 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 just a rule that you follow. Make this an experience of repentance with God, trusting in his faithfulness, his character, and his promises. I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. I will surely fulfill you. I came to give you life and life in abundance, there it is. That's what it looks like. Obedience even to the point of death on a cross. For the non-Christian, you're like, you know what? You're right. I have been doing it on my own. I have been. I've been doing it on my own, and I don't want that anymore. First step for you today, in your seat, you and God, as the band leads us in worship, say, God, forgive me. And you can take communion, saying, yeah, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you to make me clean. I trust you to mediate my relationship with God. I trust everything that you are, everything that you said you will be, no matter what. Let's respond to God today with repentance and trusting in him. Let me pray. Jesus, you fulfill the law and the prophets. Surely you will fulfill us. God, as we come to the table and we put the broken body and shed blood in our mouth, fill us up, not just physically with food, but fill us up. Man does not live on bread alone, but the very words that come from God. Make us new. Fulfill us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.